Hello there, and welcome back to the Drunken Storyteller. Welcome back to part two of lot number 249 by Arthur Conan Doyle. A tale dark and twisted, of a haunting maybe, of a creature who stalks the night, of friends, of murder and of death. Sit back, grab yourself a drink, and enjoy the chilling conclusion to this tale. Neck and neck they dashed through the darkness, and did not pull up until panting and spent. They had reached the little college by the river. Young Lee, limp and dripping like a broken water plant, was stretched upon a sofa. The green scum of the river upon his black hair and a fringe of white foam upon his leaden-hued lips. Beside him knelt his fellow student Harrington, endeavouring to chafe some warmth back into his rigid limbs. I think there's life in him, said Smith with his hand to the lad's side. Put your watch glass to his lips. Yes, there's dimming on it. You take one harm, Hasty. Now, work it as I do. We'll soon pull him round. For ten minutes they worked in silent, inflating and depressing the chest of the unconscious man. At the end of the time a shiver ran through his body. His lips trembled and his eyes opened. Three students burst out in an irreplaceable cheer. Wake up, old chap! You've frightened us quite enough. Here, have some brandy. Take a sip from the flask. He's all right now, said his companion Harrington. Heavens! What a fright I got! I was reading here, and had gone out for a stroll as the river, when I heard a scream and a splash, and out I ran, and by the time I could find him and fish him out, all life seemed to have gone. Then Simpson couldn't get a doctor, for he has a game, game leg, and I had to run, and I don't know what I would have done without you fellas. That's alright, that's alright old chap, sit up. Monkhouse Lee had raised himself on his hands and looked wildly about. Well, what's up? He asked, I, I've, I've been in the water? Ah, yes, I remember. A look of fear came into his eyes, and he sank his face into his hands. Uh, how did you fall in? I, I, I didn't fall in. Uh, how, then? I, I was thrown in. I was standing on by the bank, and something from behind me picked me up like a feather, and it hurled me in. I, I heard nothing, and I saw nothing, but I know what it was. For all that. And so do I, whispered Smith. Lee looked up with a quick glance of surprise. You've learned, then, he said. You remember the advice I gave you? Yes. And I begin to think that I shall take it. I don't know what the deuce you are fellows are talking about, said Hasty, but I think if I were you, Harrington, I should get Lee to bed at once. It will be time enough to discuss why and the whereforth when he was a little stronger. I think Smith and I can leave him alone now. I'm walking back to college. If you're coming that direction, we can have a chat. But it was little chat that they had upon their homeward path. Smith's mind was too full of the incidents of the evening. The absence of the mummy from his neighbour's room, 
the step that passed him on the stair, the reappearance, the extraordinary, inexplicable reappearance of the grisly thing, and then this attack upon Lee. Corresponding so closely to the previous outrage upon another man against whom Bellingham bore a grudge. All this settled in his thoughts, together with the many little incidents which had previously turned him against his neighbour, and the singular circumstance under which he was first called in to him. What had been a dim suspicion, a vague fantastic conjecture, had suddenly taken form and stood out in his mind as a grim fact, a thing not to be denied. And yet, how monstrous it was, how unheard of, how entirely beyond all bounds of human experience, an impartial judge, or even the friend who walked by his side would simply tell him that his eyes had deceived him, that the mummy had been there all the time, that young Lee had tumbled into the river as any other man tumbles into a river, and that blue pill was the best thing for a disordered liver. He felt that he would have said as much as if the positions had been reversed, and yet he could swear that Bellingham was a murderer at heart, and that he had wielded a weapon such as no man had ever used in all the grim history of crime. Hasty had branched off to his rooms with a few crisp, emphatic comments upon his friend's unsociability, and Abercrombie Smith crossed the quadrangle to his own corner turret with a strong feeling of repulsion for his own chambers and their associations. He would take Lee's advice and move his quarters as soon as possible. For how could a man study when his ear was ever strained for every murmur or footstep in the room below? He observed as he crossed over the lawn that the light was still shining in Billingham's window and as he passed up the staircase the door opened and the man himself looked out at him with his fat, evil face. He was like some bloated spider fresh from the weaving of his poisonous web. Good evening, said he. Won't you come in? No, cried Smith fiercely. No, you are busy as ever. I wanted to ask you about leave. I was sorry to hear that there was a rumour that something was amiss with him. His features were grave, but there was the gleam of a hidden laugh in his eyes as he spoke. Smith saw it, and he could have knocked him down for it. You'll be sorrier still to hear that Monkhouse Lee is doing very well, and it is out of all danger, he answered. Your hellish tricks have not come off this time. Oh, you needn't try to brazen it out. I know all about it. Bellingham took a step back from the angry student and half closed the door as if to protect himself. You are mad, said he. What do you mean? Do you assert that I had anything to do with Lee's accident? Yes, thundered Smith. You and the bag of bones behind you. You worked it between you. I tell you what it is, Master B, that you have given up burning folk like you, but you still keep a hangman. And by George, if any man in this college meets his death while you are here, 
I'll have you up, and if you don't swing for it, it won't be my fault. You'll find your filthy Egyptian tricks won't answer in England. You're a raving lunatic, said Bellingham. All right, you're just what I say. You'll find that I'll be better than any word. The door slammed, and Smith went fuming to his chamber where he locked the door from the inside and spent half the night in smoking his old brown brooding over the strange events of the evening. Next morning, at Combay Smith heard nothing of his neighbour, but Harrington called upon him in the afternoon to say that Lee was almost himself again. All day Smith stuck fast to his work, but in the evening he determined to pay the visit to his friend Dr Peterson upon which he had started the night before. A good walk and a friendly chat would be welcome to his jangled nerves. Bellingham's door was shut as he passed, but he glanced back when he was some distance from the turret. He saw his neighbour's head at the window, outlined against the gap, the lamp. Bellingham's door was shut as he passed, but glancing back when he was some distance from the turret, he saw his neighbour's head at the window, outlined against the lamplight. His face pressed apparently against the glass as he gazed out into the darkness. It was a blessing to be away from all contact with him, if but for a few hours, and Smith stepped out briskly and breathed the soft spring air into his lungs. The half-moon lay in the west between the two gothic pinnacles that threw upon the silvered street a dark tracery from the stonework above. There was a brisk breeze and light Fleecy clouds drifted swiftly across the sky. Olds was on the very border of town, and in five minutes Smith found himself beyond the houses and between the hedges of a May-scented Oxfordshire lane. It was a lonely and little-frequented road which led to his friend's house. Early as it was, Smith did not meet a single soul upon his way. He walked briskly along until he came to the avenue gate which opened in the, to a long gravel drive leading up to Farlingford. In front of him he could see the cosy red light of the windows glimmering through the cottage. He stood with his hand upon the iron latch of the swinging gate, and he glanced back at the road along which he had come. Something was coming swiftly down it. It moved in the shadow of a hedge, silently and furiously, a dark, crouching figure, dimly visible against the black background. Even as he gazed back at it, it had lessened its distance by twenty paces, and was fast closing upon him. Out of the darkness he had glimpsed a scraggy neck, and of two eyes that will ever haunt him in his dreams. He turned, and with a cry of terror he ran for his life up the avenue. There were the red lights, the signals of safety, almost within a stone's throw of him. He was a famous runner, but he had never run as fast as he had ran that night. The heavy gate had swung into place behind him, but he heard it dash open again before his pursuer. As he rushed madly and wildly through the night, he could hear a swift, dry patter behind him, and he could see, as he threw back a glance, that this horror was abounding like a tiger at his heels. With blazing eyes and one stringly arm outthrown, thank God the door was ajar. He could see the thin bar of light which shot from the lamp in the hall. Nearer yet sounded the clatter from behind. He heard a horse gurgling at his very shoulder. With a shriek, he flung himself against the door, slammed and bolted it behind him, and sank 
half fainting onto the hall chair. My goodness, Mr. Smith, what, what what's the matter? asked Peterson, appearing at the door of the study. Give me some brandy. Peterson disappeared and came rushing out again with a glass and a decanter. You need it, he said, as his visitor drank off what he poured out for him. Why, man, why, you're white as cheese. Smith laid down his glass, rose up, and took a deep breath. I, I am my own man again now, said he. I was never so unmanned before, but with your leave, Peterson, I will sleep here tonight, for I don't think I could face that road again except by daylight. It's weak, I know, but I can't help it. Peterson looked at his visitor with a very questioning eye. Of course you shall sleep here if you wish. I'll tell Mrs. Bernie to make up the spare bed. Uh, where are you off to now? Come up with me to the window that overlooks the door. I want you to see what I have seen. They went up to the window of the upper hall, whence they could look down upon the approach to the house. The drive in the fields on either side lay quiet and still, and bathed in the peaceful moonlight. Well, really, Smith, remarked Peterson, it is well that I know you to be an absentious man. What in the world could have frightened you? I'll tell you presently, but where can I have gone? Ah, now look, look, see the curve of the road just beyond your gate? Yes, I see. You needn't pinch my arm off. I saw someone pass, I should say a man, rather thin, apparently, and tall. Very tall. But what of him, and what of yourself? You are still shaking like an aspen leaf. I have been within the hand grip of the devil, that's all. But come down to your study, and I shall tell you the whole story. He did so, under the cheery lamplight, with a glass of wine on the table beside him and the portly form and florid face of his friend in front. He narrated, in their order, all the events, great and small, which had formed so singular a chain, from the night on which he had found Bellingham fainting in front of the mummy case until his horrid experience of an hour ago. There now! he said as he concluded. That's the whole black business. It's monstrous and incredible. But it is true. Dr. Plumptree Peterson sat for some time in silence and with a very puzzled expression on his face. I've never heard of such a thing in my life. Never, he said at last. You have told me the facts. Now, Tell me your inferences. You can draw your own. But I should like to hear yours. You have thought the matter over, and I have not. Well, it must be a little vague in detail, but the main points seem to me to be clear enough. This fellow Bellingham in his eastern studies has got hold of some infernal secret by which a mummy, or possibly only this particular mummy, can be temporarily brought to life. He was trying this disgusting business on the night when he fainted. No doubt the sight of the creature moving had shaken his nerve, even though he had expected it. 
You remember that almost the first words he said were to call out upon himself as a fool? Well, he got more hardened afterwards and carried the matter through without fainting. The vitality which he could put into it was evidently only a passing thing, for I have seen it continually in its case as a dead as a table. He has some elaborate process, I fancy, by which he brings the thing to pass. Having done it, he naturally bethought him that he might use the creature as an agent. It has intelligence and it has strength. For some purpose he took Lee into his confidence, but Lee, like a decent Christian, would have nothing to do with such a business. Then they had a row, and Lee vowed that he would tell his sister of Bellingham's true character. Bellingham's game was to prevent him, and he nearly managed it. By setting this creature of his own on his track, he had already tried his powers upon another man, Naunton, towards whom he had a grudge. It is the merest chance that he is not two murders upon his soul. Then, when I taxed him with the matter, he had the strongest reasons for wishing me out of the way, before I could convey my knowledge to anyone else. He got his chance when I went out, for he knew my habits and where I was bound. I have had a narrow shave, Peterson, and it is mere luck that you didn't find me on your doorstep this morning. I'm not a nervous man as a rule, and I never thought to have fear of death put upon me as it was tonight. My dear boy, you take the matter too seriously, said his companion. Your nerves are out of order with your work, and you make too much of it. How could such a thing as his stride about the streets of Oxford, even at night, without being seen? Oh, it has been seen. There is quite a scare in the town about an escaped ape, as they imagine the creature to be. It is the talk of the place. Well, it's a striking chain of events, and yet, my dear fellow, you must allow that each incident in itself is capable of a more natural explanation. What? Even my adventure of tonight? Certainly. You come out with your nerves all the strong, and your head is full of theories of yours. Some gaunt, half-famished tramp steals after you, and seeing you run is emboldened to pursue you. Your fears and imagination do the rest. It won't do, Peterson, it won't do. And again, in the instance of your finding the mummy case empty, and then a few moments later with an occupant. You know that it was lamplight and that the lamp was half turned down, and that you have no special reason to look hard at the case. It is quite possible that you may have overlooked the creature in the first instant. No. No, it is out of question. And then Lee may have fallen into the river, and Norton may have been garroted. It is certainly a formidable indictment that you have against Bellingham, but if you were to place it before a police magistrate, he would simply laugh in your face. I know he would. That is why I mean to take the matter into my own hands. Yes, yes. I feel a public duty rests upon me, and besides, I must do it for my own safety, unless I choose to allow myself to be haunted by this beast out of the college. And what would be a little too feeble? I have quite made up my mind on what I shall do. And first of all, may I use your paper and pens for an hour? Most certainly, you will find all that you want upon the side table. Abercrombie Smith sat down before a sheet of foolscap for an hour, and then, for a second hour, his pen travelled swiftly over it. Page after page was finished and tossed aside while his friend leaned back in his armchair, 
looking across at him with patient curiosity. At last, with an explanation of satisfaction, Smith sprang to his feet, gathered his papers up into order, and laid the last one upon Peterson's desk. Kindly sign this as a witness, he said. A witness? Of what? Of my signature and the date. The date is of most important. Why, Peterson, my life might hang upon it. My dear Smith, you are talking wildly. Let me beg you go to bed. On the contrary, I have never spoke so deliberately in my life and I will promise to go to the bed the moment you have signed it. But, but what is it? It is a statement of all that I have been telling you tonight. I wish you to witness it. Certainly, said Peterson, signing his name under that of his companion. There you are, um, but what is the idea? You will kindly retain it and produce it in case I am arrested. Arrested? For what? For murder. It is quite on the cards. I wish to be ready for every event. There is only one course upon me, and I am determined to take it. For heaven's sake, don't do anything rash. Believe me, it would be far more rash to adopt any other course. I hope that we won't need to bother you, but... It will ease my mind to know that you have this statement of my motives. And now I am ready to take your advice and go to roost. For I want to be at my best in the morning. Abercrombie Smith was not an entirely pleasant man to have as an enemy. Slow and easy tempered. He was formidable when driven to action. He brought to every purpose in life the same deliberate resoluteness which had distinguished him as a scientific student. He had laid his studies aside for a day, but he intended that the day should not be wasted. Not a word did he say to his host as to his plans, but by nine o'clock he was well on his way to Oxford. In the high street, he stopped at Clifford's, the gunmakers, and brought a heavy revolver with a box of central fire cartridges. Six of them he slipped into the chambers and half-cocked the weapon, placed it in the pocket of his coat. He then made his way to Hasty's rooms, where the big oarsman was lounging over his breakfast with the sporting times propped up against the coffee pot. Hello, what's up? he asked. Have some coffee. No, thank you. I want you to come with me, Hasty, and do what I ask you. Certainly, my boy. And bring a heavy stick with you. Hello, said Hasty. Here's a hunting crop that would fell an ox. One other thing. You have a box of amputating knives. Give me the longest of them. There you are. You seem to be fairly on the war trail. Anything else? No. That will do. Smith placed the knife inside his coat and led the way to the quadrangle. We are neither of us chickens, Hasty, said he. I think I can do, do this job alone, but I take you as a precaution. I'm going to have a little tour with Bellingham. If I have only to deal with him, I won't, of course, need you. 
If I shout, however, up you come and I am out with your whip as hard as you can lick. Do you understand? Alright, I'll come if I hear you, Bella. Stay here then. I may be a little time, but don't budge until I come down. I'm a fixture. Smith ascended the stairs and opened Bellingham's door and stepped in. Bellingham was seated behind his table, writing. Beside him, among his litter of strange possessions, towered the mummy case, with its sale number 249 still stuck upon its front, and its hideous occupant stiff and stark within it. Smith looked very deliberately round him, closed the door, and then stepping across to the fireplace, struck a match and set the fire alight. Bellingham sat staring with amazement and rage upon his bloated face. Well, really now, you make yourself at home, he gasped. Smith sat himself deliberately down, placing his watch upon the table, drew out his pistol, cocked it and laid it in his lap. Then, he took the long amputating knife from his bosom and threw it down in front of Bellingham. Now then, said he, just get to work and cut up that mummy. Oh, is that it? said Bellingham with a sneer. Yes, that is it. They tell me that the law can't touch you, but I have a law that will set matters straight. If, in five minutes, you have not set to work, I swear by the God who made me that I will put a bullet through your brain. You wouldn't murder me? Bellingham had half-risen and his face was the colour of putty. Yes. And for what? To stop your mischief. One minute has gone. But what have I ever done? I know, and you know. This is mere bullying. Two minutes are gone. But you must give reasons. You're a madman, a dangerous man. Why would I destroy my property? It is a valuable mummy. You must cut it up, and you must burn it. I will do no such thing. Four minutes are gone. Smith took up the pistol, and he looked towards Bellingham with an inexorable face. As the second hand stole round, he raised his hand, and the figure twitched upon the trigger. There! There! I'll do it! screamed Bellingham. In frantic haste, he caught up the knife and hacked the figure of the mummy, ever glancing round to see the eye and the weapon of his terrible visitor bent upon him. The creature cracked and snapped under every stab of the keen blade. A thick yellow dust rose up from it. Spices and dried essences rained down upon the floor, and suddenly, with a rending crack, its backbone snapped asunder, and it fell a brown heap of sprawling limbs upon the floor. Now, into the fire, said Smith. 
The flames leaped and roared as the dried and tender-like debris was piled upon it. The little room was like a stock hole of steamer and sweat ran down the faces of the two men. But still, the one stooped and worked while the other sat and watching him with a set face. A thick, fat smoke oozed from the fire with a heavy smell of burned rosin and singed hair filled the air. In a quarter of an hour, a few charged and brittle sticks were all that was left of lot number 249. Perhaps that will satisfy you, snarled Bellingham with hate and fear in his little grey eyes as he glanced back at his tormentor. No, I must make a clean sweep of all your materials. We must have no more devil's tricks. In with all these leaves. They may have something to do with it. <laughs> and what now? asked Bellingham when the leaves also had been added to the blaze. Now the roll of papyrus which you had had on the table that night. It is in that drawer, I think. No! No! shouted Bellingham. Don't burn that! Why, man, you don't know what it to do. It is unique. It contains wisdom which is nowhere else to be found. Out with it. <laughs> but look here, Smith. You can't really mean it. I'll share the knowledge with you. I'll teach you all that it is in it. Or, stay, let me only copy it before you burn it. Smith stepped forward and turned the key in the drawer, taking out the yellow curled roll of paper and threw it into the fire and pressed it down with his heel, and Bellingham screamed and grabbed at it. But Smith pushed him back and stood over it until it was reduced to a formless grey ash. Now, Mr. B, said he, I think I have pretty well drawn your teeth. You'll hear from me again if you return to your old tricks. And now, good morning. I must go back to my studies. And such is the narrative of Abercrombie Smith as to the singular events which occurred in Old College, Oxford in the spring of 84. As Bellingham left the university immediately afterwards and was last heard of in the Sudan, there is no one who can contradict his statement. But the wisdom of men is small and the ways of nature are strange. And who shall put a bound to the dark things which may be found by those who seek for them? And there we go, listeners. That is the tale of Lot 249 by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I do hope you enjoyed this trip through the back streets of Oxford and the academic troubles that can arise when you tread paths that maybe you shouldn't. I do hope that as you walk down those dark streets tonight or tomorrow that the steps you hear following you and nothing too bad. So yes, there we go. That is the first story. 
Willie Told now for season two. No, season three we're on now. Let's say this season's going to be a load of little uh, short gothic horror stories, so do be prepared for that. Um, I'm not sure yet what the next one's going to be. I've got a load of stories already listed. I just don't know which way, which order I'm going to do them in. So I'm going to record them as and when. But yeah, so that's that's the first one. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it's not quite folklore, I know, but it's still me. It's it's gothic. It's horror. It's dark. It's all those fun things. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. Um, and now for all those promo gubbins. Uh, the Kickstarter is still live for Eye to the Void, a book uh, that takes real-world history and folklore and religion of divination and uses it as an inspiration for your RPG tabletop games. It is a system agnostic book. It is not specifically tied to a specific game. So don't expect any specific mechanics and rules within it, but it is a look at divination from around the world and how we can use it to inspire our our games. Uh, it is currently on at Kickstarter, so go look for Eye to the Void um, on Kickstarter. We are about 250% funded, so any more money would be wonderful. A few new stretch goals will be going up soon um, that are quite fun and cool, so do go check those out. What else have we got? I have a Kofi account, so if you want to buy me a coffee, you can go over to kofi.com forward slash the drunken storyteller. Link should hopefully, I'll link everything hopefully within the notes. I forgot to link my Kofi in the last one. I apologize. Other than that, I've got not, not really got much else to say. It's, uh, it's bonfire night tonight and I'm sat home editing the podcast, so yay. In English people enjoy the fireworks. I don't have any here. I just have the dark forest outside my window, so it's quite nice. So all that is left for me to say is look forward to the next one and good night, my friends. <laughs>